Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, November 11th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. DeSantis resoundingly defeats Christ for Florida governor. Biden moles a 2024 run for president. Ukraine is skeptical of Russia's claimed withdrawal from her son. Iran claims to have built a hypersonic missile. Musk bans remote work at Twitter. British police will apologize to a Russian businessman. Chances of figuring out COVID's ancestry are reportedly almost nil. Indonesia's dengue vaccine rollout is marred by concerns. And Australia plans a potential referendum on monarchy. Our first story brings us to U.S. midterms news, where Biden mulls a 2024 run as election results continue. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Politico, NPR Online News, Financial Times, Reuters, and the Associated Press. On Wednesday, President Biden suggested that he intends to run again for the presidency in 2024, in his first speech since polls closed for the midterm elections. However, he clarified that he's not in any hurry to officially decide and that further conversations are needed. Reflecting on what he described as a good day for democracy and a good day for America, in the wake of better-than-expected midterm results for Democrats, Biden, who turns 80 this month, claimed that it would ultimately be a family decision, likely made in early 2023. The president stated that he was ready to compromise with Republicans on some issues. He said he would invite congressional leaders from both parties to the White House after traveling to the Middle East and Asia later this week. While the heavy defeat that many polls projected for the Democrats didn't materialize, exit polls showed that approximately two-thirds of those surveyed don't want Biden to seek a second term. The president told reporters that his message to skeptics was simply, watch me. Biden, referring to a potential GOP primary battle between former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, said he would find it fun watching them take on each other. Neither Republicans nor Democrats have yet to clinch majorities in the House of Representatives or Senate as of yet. Our mission on this program is to separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are some narrative spins, beginning with NewsBud's Democratic Narrative. A dreaded red wave was thwarted in the U.S. midterms in large part due to the extraordinary voting power of Gen Z. Whether Biden chooses to run or not in 2024, the deeper issue for the Democratic Party is how to select leadership that will speak to the issues relevant to this emerging voter bloc. This election proved that the future is now. And the Republican narrative is provided by Epic Times. Biden is already the oldest sitting president in U.S. history and has poor approval ratings. Things don't look good for the president for a 2024 run. Despite some setbacks in the 2022 midterms, the GOP is looking solid for the next election, especially if Biden insists on trying to carry the mantle. And from time to time, we have a statistics-based nerd narrative. This one says there's a 48 percent chance that Trump will win the 2024 U.S. presidential election if it is Biden versus Trump, according to the Metaculous prediction community. Are you surprised by that nerd narrative, uh, Melissa, or is that what you would expect? I'm not. And I do enjoy the nerd narrative every time. It gives me something fun to think about. However, when it comes to polling for politics, I try to really take everything with a grain of salt. 
I took a class on uh, political polling in college, and it was amazing how few people you have to poll to get a statistically relevant polling sample. The margin for error shrinks pretty small, even with a pretty limited sample size. It's amazing that mm. the science of polling is kind of crazy. It kind of makes my head spin. Yeah, I think it's supposed to. More U.S. midterms news as DeSantis beats Christ in the Florida governor's race. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, ABC News, The New York Times, Fox News, Politico, and The Tampa Bay Times. With 99% of expected votes counted as of Wednesday evening, Florida's incumbent governor, Republican Ron DeSantis, was re-elected by a 19.4-point margin over his Democratic challenger Charlie Crist in Tuesday's midterms. Crist, who served as Florida's 44th governor from 2007 to 2011 as a Republican, gave a concession speech while surrounded by his family at around 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday. The overwhelming victory, which included a flip of Miami-Dade County to the GOP after two decades of Democrat control, confirmed Republicans' grip of power in the once-swing state. The result also affirmed DeSantis as a potential contender for presidency in 2024. At his election night victory celebration, DeSantis thanked Floridians for their support, which he said had rewritten the political map. Florida doesn't have a single Democrat holding statewide office following the elections. DeSantis deemed it a win for the ages. This comes as the voters registered as Republicans outnumbered those registered as Democrats in Florida for the first time in the state's political history. The GOP had 320,000 more registered voters than their opponents. The shift reflected a significant victory for Florida's Republican Party, which spent $5 million on voter registration efforts in the lead-up to the midterms. DeSantis governed decisively in his first term, which he won by less than half a percentage point. He is expected to keep engaging in cultural fights against the so-called woke agenda and to consolidate the power of his office during his second term. Thank you, Scott, for reading the facts on that story. We've got several narrative spins on this one. The Republican narrative comes from the New York Post. DeSantis' policies reflect American principles and must serve as a model for the entire nation, turning Florida into a refuge of sanity by fighting authoritarianism and wokeism has seen him consolidate support and ensure this historic result. This new mandate positions DeSantis as a strong contender for 2024, especially considering the fate of Trump's candidates in the midterm elections. Time magazine brings us the Democratic narrative. DeSantis's policies during his first governorship should be enough to provoke a major backlash, but Democrats have allowed his re-election by failing to invest in Christ's campaign. Democrats should have done more to target DeSantis and highlight the issues in Florida that he has failed to address. Now the new governor will be emboldened to carry out further controversial policies, possibly even run for GOP presidential nomination. And an establishment critical narrative comes from Politico. DeSantis has performed impressively, but Donald Trump should not be counted out of the 2024 presidential election just yet. Only a fraction of the party faithful that publicly supported Trump through these midterms has peeled off, and his ability to raise campaign funding remains strong. Although DeSantis looks like a convincing presidential nominee, he is yet to prove his appeal beyond the state of Florida. Could current commentary be yet another premature declaration of Trump's demise? 
We've got another nerd narrative on this story. This one says there's a 36% chance that Ron DeSantis will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Iran claims to have built a hypersonic missile. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg, Fox News, All Monitor, CBS, and Tasnim News Agency. According to Iran's semi-official Tasnim News Agency, the country's Revolutionary Guards Aerospace Commander announced that Tehran has built a hypersonic ballistic missile. So far, there have been no reports of Iran using the weapon. Brigadier General Amir Ali Hajizadeh told reporters on Thursday that this homegrown hypersonic ballistic missile is capable of striking and penetrating advanced air defense systems, adding that he doesn't think any technology capable of countering it would be found for tens of years. This comes days after the U.S. expressed concern that Russia could purchase Iranian surface-to-surface missiles for use in the Ukraine war after buying drones from Tehran. While the U.S. Department of Defense is reported to be well aware of the situation and closely monitoring further developments, it remains skeptical as Iran reportedly exaggerated its military capabilities in the past. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Rafael Grossi, stressed that this announcement increases the concerns and public attention on the Iranian nuclear program, but it's unlikely to have any influence on negotiations over it. Hypersonic missiles can fly more than five times the speed of sound and are maneuverable, making them more challenging to track and defend against than traditional missiles. Because they fly on a trajectory low in the atmosphere, they can reach targets more quickly. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Press TV brings us the pro-Iran spin. This announcement shows that Iranian armed forces have not only become self-sufficient in weapons manufacturing in recent years, but also that they can develop state-of-the-art equipment. It must be crystal clear to Iran's enemies that Tehran will never hesitate to strengthen its military capabilities, nor will it negotiate its defense capabilities. Washington Post provides the anti-Iran spin. While global powers like China, Russia, and the U.S. are believed to be pursuing hypersonic weapons, this announcement is likely to be another fabrication by Tehran. Hypersonic missiles aren't listed in the Revolutionary Guard's broad ballistic program, and the commander has offered not a single shred of evidence to support his claim. We've got another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 10% chance that the U.S. will rejoin the Iran nuclear deal before the year 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I think I have a peace solution, Scott. Hear me out. Let's hear it. So Iran uh, and this general need to come to Seattle. They can be the Seattle hypersonics Mm. and play basketball instead of trying to make weapons uh, and control people's lives. I love it. And then the the people of Seattle could use a team. I mean, that's kind of like a win-win-win. Yeah, they get behind him and... And the and the rest of the military, they start playing ball instead of fighting. Everybody wins. In day 260 of the Ukraine conflict, Ukraine is skeptical of Russia's withdrawal from her zone. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by MSN, U.S. News and World Report, the Institute for the Study of War, Ukraine Forum, and Pravda. Ukrainian officials have remained skeptical after Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu publicly ordered his troops to withdraw from the west bank of the Dnipro River on Wednesday. The order marks an evacuation of Russian troops from Kherson. 
Among those expressing skepticism was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who said, The enemy does not bring us gifts, does not make gestures of goodwill. We fight our way up. He added, Therefore, we move very carefully, without emotions, without unnecessary risk, in the interest of the liberation of our entire land, and so that the losses are as small as possible. This is how we will secure the liberation of Kherson, Kekovka, Donetsk, and our other cities. However, according to analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, a U.S.-based military think tank, the Russian withdrawal is unlikely to be a trap meant to lure Ukrainian troops into costly combat near Kherson city, as some Ukrainian and Western sources have suggested. The think tank added ISW has previously observed many indicators that Russian forces, military and economic assets, and occupation elements have steadily withdrawn from the West Bank across the Dnipro River, and Russian officials have been anticipating and preparing for withdrawal in a way that is incompatible with a campaign to deceive and trap Ukrainian troops. They further added, however, that Russian troops will certainly attempt to slow Ukrainian advances and maintain an orderly withdrawal. On Thursday, Ukrainian officials reported that Russian troops were planting mines near roads and settlements in the Kherson region. Meanwhile, according to unverified video footage, Ukrainian troops on Thursday claimed to have recaptured the town of Snihervika in the southern Mykolaiv region. The town is roughly 35 miles or 55 kilometers from the city of Kherson. Elsewhere, Russian efforts continued in the Donetsk region where Ukrainian officials reported three civilians were killed and 12 more injured in the last 24 hours. One civilian in Zaporizhia and one in Dnipropetrovsk were also injured in Russian attacks. Those were the facts on that daily update, and here are the narrative spins, starting with an anti-Russia narrative from CNN. There's no camouflaging Moscow's failure. After illegally annexing Kherson, distributing Russian passports, and suggesting the ruble would replace the Ukrainian Rivnia, Russia's withdrawal from the West Bank of the Dnipro is both unsurprising and humiliating. TASS brings us the pro-Russian narrative. After strikes on supply lines to the west bank of the Dnipro River, Russian leaders have made the difficult but strategically sound decision to withdraw troops in order to preserve the lives of servicemen and deploy them more effectively elsewhere. Another nerd narrative on this story saying there is a 50% chance that Ukraine will regain control of Kherson by November 27, 2022. I don't know. If I was a leader, I think it's pretty uh, sound to let's proceed as if it was a trap and be careful. I kind of agree with that, even if it isn't a trap, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was always raised to never trust anyone for any reason. You know, I don't believe that you were raised that way. UK police will apologize to Russian businessman Abramovich. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and U.S. News. On Wednesday, a court on the English Channel Island of Jersey ordered local police to apologize to Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich and pay damages for what it ruled to be an illegally obtained warrant to conduct raids on his properties earlier this year. Jersey is a self-governing island but follows UK sanctions. Sanctioned by Britain, the Royal Court of Jersey froze $7 billion worth of assets linked to Abramovich in April with two warrants then issued for police to search premises suspected to be linked to him. Police have now admitted that they were obtained unlawfully and should be quashed. 
The former Chelsea soccer club owner has reportedly acted as a middleman between Russia and Ukraine, with Kyiv having previously asked the U.S. not to impose sanctions on him, a request the U.S. has so far heeded. The EU, in contrast, has imposed sanctions on him. As a dual Portuguese citizen, he has argued that his rights protected by the EU have been violated. He's suing to reverse the decision and asking for $1 million to go to charity as compensation. Abramovich made his wealth as a commodity trader after the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the 1990s, he acquired stakes in oil company Sibneft, aluminum producer Rusal, and the airline Aeroflot. He also served under Russian President Putin as governor of the Far East Chukota region of Russia. Much of his wealth was consolidated in Jersey, with company service provider Zedra Trust Company, LTD, set up in Jersey's capital, St. Helier administering at least a dozen companies and trusts linked to Abramovich. Thanks for the facts, Melissa. RT brings us the establishment critical narrative. After this formal acknowledgement of illegally searching Abramovich's property, it's safe to say the UK government and UK adjacent islands have gone too far in attacking him. Despite reports that he doesn't even support Putin's invasion, they've stripped him of $7 billion, his soccer team, and now his privacy. The pro-establishment narrative comes from the Bailiwick Express. Though sanctions should be imposed lawfully, we shouldn't forget the necessity of monitoring and sanctioning billionaires with deep ties to Putin, which Abramovich inarguably has. Jersey committed itself to ensure its sanctions regime fully aligned with the UK and was merely acting on that pledge in April. Narrative C comes from Al Jazeera. It's hypocritical to impose sanctions on Russia for invading Ukraine, but not on the U.S. for invading Iraq for equally unjustified reasons, or on Israel for invading and annexing Arab lands. And in Twitter news, Musk bans remote work. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, The New York Post, and Reuters. New Twitter owner Elon Musk on Wednesday sent his first email to employees warning them about difficult financial times in the company's near future and banning remote work unless he personally approves it. Under previous leadership, Twitter had adopted a permanent work-from-anywhere arrangement for its employees. Monthly, company-wide days of rest, which were introduced during the COVID pandemic, have also been eliminated. Musk wrote, There is no way to sugarcoat the message, and the road ahead is arduous and will require intense work to succeed. In his first email, before sending a second email that said suspending bots, trolls, and spam accounts are the company's top priority. Just two weeks out from his $44 billion purchase of Twitter, Musk has laid off half the company's workforce, including many top executives, and has begun revamping its Twitter Blue subscription program, charging $8 for a plan that includes user verification. Musk, who also said in his email that he wants subscriptions to account for half the company's revenue, told advertisers in a Wednesday meeting they should be assured the result of his moves will be a safer, better Twitter. Employees at Musk's SpaceX and Tesla are also limited in remote work options and must be in the office at least 40 hours a week. We've got three spins on this story. Narrative A comes from Verge. After paying a steep price for Twitter, Musk is free to do what he likes while managing his staff. But many of the company's recent problems have been inflicted by Musk, who has scared off advertisers with his reduction in content moderating and his bungled rollout of the flawed subscription service. He might want to look in the mirror before blaming his new staffers. 
Narrative B comes from Daily Wire. Musk is putting Twitter on the right track toward becoming a free speech sanctuary, and he started with a positive crackdown on users, including celebrities who have been wrongly impersonating high-profile people. Unfortunately, unhinged woke activists are organizing boycotts of advertisers and hindering his ability to make his vision for the company a reality. So he has to do what he can to counter that cut to revenue. And the nerds are speaking again, saying there's a 31 percent chance that Elon Musk will become the first trillionaire. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Are you a Twitter uh, user, Melissa? I am not. No, I uh, get overwhelmed by social media, so I try to keep it tight and narrow. I even find when people tell me to, you know, oh, market yourself on social media or things, you know, as a business owner, I find I go on there to try to do that and then waste hours reading other people's stuff. And like, I can't even like (laughs) stick my toe into the quicksand without just ruining everything. So my solution to that is just don't promote myself at all and just don't get anything. I'm right there with you. (laughs) We just need to get to a point where we can hire a Gen Z who knows how to be disciplined. Yes. Yes. Uh, And yeah, and let them just rock that for us. Yep. I'll cash the checks. You write the content. Done. In a new study, the chances of finding COVID's ancestor are almost nil. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, The Telegraph, and Al Jazeera. In a recent study published in Nature, researchers found that the virus that caused COVID most likely shared a common ancestor with bat coronaviruses as recently as 2016, just three years before it appeared in humans. The study showed how it would be nearly impossible to find the direct ancestor, however, because of the frequency in which the virus recombines and the length of time that has lapsed. The search for the origin of the virus was catalyzed when former U.S. President Trump suggested the source of the pandemic was a lab leak originating from Wuhan, China. The theory was largely dismissed early on by epidemiology researchers as a conspiracy theory, though some have since claimed it's still considered a possibility by government officials behind closed doors. Nearly three years into the pandemic, separate probes from the Lancet and World Health Organization have yielded no significant findings for various reasons. The Nature study narrowed the timeline between SARS-CoV-2 originating in bats and its subsequent jump to humans, but doesn't explain how this jump was made. Many experts agree that there was likely an intermediary animal in the cross-connection. Genome sequencing of the virus's closest ancestors and likely hosts suggest that China and Southeast Asia are hotspots for the ancestors of SARS-CoV-2. Thanks for the facts there, Melissa. The Intercept brings us an establishment-critical narrative. No determination should be made on the origins of COVID until all of the data has been reviewed and analyzed, including the lab leak theory. U.S. federal agencies and universities have additional evidence yet to be analyzed that could shed light on missing information. The National Health Institute has failed to dig deep and has overlooked many details. The agency's failure and lackadaisical attitude are no longer good enough. The pro-establishment narrative comes from CNN. Countless scientists and researchers across multiple studies have found that the COVID virus originated in a market in Wuhan, China, most likely due to multiple zoonotic events. Though the exact origin may never be known, the next step should be focusing on how to reduce the chances of the next zoonotic spillover pandemic through detection, surveillance, monitoring, and prevention. 
And there's a nerd narrative provided by Metaculus. They say there's a 14% chance there will be a novel pathogen that kills over 25 million people between 2022 and 2031, according to the Metaculus prediction community. And in more epidemiological news, Indonesia's dengue vaccine rollout is marred by concerns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, Bloomberg, and Fierce Pharma. Controversy over potential safety concerns has emerged ahead of a planned rollout of a vaccine aimed at preventing infection from dengue in Indonesia next year. The jab of a drug called Qdenga was developed by Tokyo-based Takeda, with hopes to reduce the 20,000 annual deaths from the mosquito-borne illness. The first vaccine for dengue fever was developed more than seven years ago, but was only effective for people with previous infections. This development encouraged Takeda to accelerate its actions to manufacture an alternative. According to researchers at Oxford University, the rate of dengue infections has increased eightfold over the last 20 years to nearly 400 million infections annually. Scientists are warning that climate change will send the number of infections soaring because more than half the world's population already lives in vulnerable areas. One month after Qdenga was approved in Indonesia, the drug was recommended for approval by the Committee for Medicinal Products for Human Use of the European Medicines Agency, or EMA, for use in Europe and dengue endemic countries. The approval was based on data from trials that included more than 28,000 adults and children. Takeda's largest Qdenga trial showed that the vaccine prevented 84% of hospitalizations and 61% of symptomatic dengue cases. The data determined that Qdenga was safe and well-tolerated and also provided protection against all dengue variations. However, scientists are concerned that the jab of Qdenga may induce a rare but serious condition called antibody-dependent enhancement, where the vaccine can produce antibodies that make the infection worse. A University of North Carolina virologist recently expressed deep concern over Indonesia's approval of the vaccine for this reason. We have two narrative spins on this story. Narrative A comes from science. In 2019, a pediatrician and a medical researcher in the Philippines were indicted over the premature and failed rollout of the dengue vaccine, Dengvaxia. Post-rollout, 130 children died, sparking concerns over ADE and outrage from the parents of more than 830,000 children who received the vaccine. Botched rollouts have consequences, even for combating a disease as dangerous as dengue, and Indonesia should proceed with caution. We Forum brings Narrative B. There may be a different path to take. Researchers in Indonesia have also discovered a new way to fight dengue by breeding a special mosquito species designed to carry bacteria to prevent viruses like dengue from reproducing inside the insect. Deploying the mosquitoes has shown a reduction in dengue cases by as much as 77%. This ecosystem-based solution may greatly reduce the need for unproven vaccines in the future. That is fascinating. It is. It is. That being said, I just hate mosquitoes. Don't you hate them? That's why I live in Seattle. No humidity. In our final story for today, Australia plans a potential referendum on the monarchy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Australian Electoral Commission, and the National Archives of Australia. 
The debate about the future of the monarchy in Australia has been sparked following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, with Anthony Albanese's administration planning to hold a referendum to test Australians' support for a republic. While the government is currently prioritizing the referendum on adding an indigenous voice to parliament in this term, a successful result in this vote would reportedly encourage Albanese to put the post of head of state to a national ballot in a possible second term. Over the first half of 2023, Australia's Attorney General's Department will convene discussions to help inform the government's approach to holding a republic referendum. Assistant Minister for the Republic Matt Thistlethwaite stated that those who voted against the measure in 1999, as well as youth and immigrant groups, would be a key focus. A Guardian essential poll taken after Queen Elizabeth II's death indicated that support for a republic in Australia has stagnated over the past five years at 43 percent. A double-majority vote, a national-majority yes vote, and a majority in at least four of Australia's six states must be achieved for a referendum to be successful and the country's constitution to be changed. Australians were asked in 1999 about altering the constitution to establish the country as a republic. The proposal was rejected by a 9.7-point margin, and the majority yes was recorded only in the Australian Capital Territory. Thanks for those facts. Let's begin our last round of narrative spins with the pro-establishment narrative from American Spectator. The monarchy is part of the British heritage that has enabled Australia to be a strong, long-lasting democracy and an attractive destination for immigrants. There's no reason to denigrate the country's culture by replacing this impeccable and impartial leadership for a politician's republic, especially not when the main argument for that is based on assumptions about the rising population of Chinese and Indian immigrants. And here's the establishment critical narrative from SBS News. Replacing the British monarch is an important move for Australia. It would give all Australian voters a merit-based choice about who speaks for them as head of state, reflecting Australia's maturity, independence, and unique identity. The decision will be in the Australian voters' hands, unlike now where it's luck of the draw of who's representing the British royal family. And one final nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 72% chance that Australia will hold a federal referendum on an indigenous voice to parliament before January of 2026. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, November 11th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.